Welcome to Tech Empire. I'm your host, Michael Quet, and we are broadcasting from my place instead of the usual Yale Broadcasting Studio due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, today, we're launching the second season, and we have on the show none other than Fina Dubal, who will be discussing changes to the transportation industry due to the rise of companies like Uber and Lyft. Vina is a professor of law at the University of California Hastings in San Francisco. She has been cited by the California Supreme Court and her scholarship has been published in top tier law review and peer reviewed journals, including the California Law Review and the Berkeley Journal of Empirical and Labor Law. Based on over a decade of ethnographic and historic study, Professor Dubois is currently writing a manuscript, Driving Freedom, Navigating Neoliberalism, on how five decades of shifting technologies and emergent regulatory regimes change the everyday lives and work experiences of ride-hail drivers in San Francisco. She has also been published in The Guardian, Slate, and The Los Angeles Times, among other places. Vina, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. All right, um, so we're gonna break this show into three parts. Uh, first, I kinda wanna do a one-on-one -on -one where we talk how, about how taxi services work, about how e-hailing services like Uber and Lyft work, um, and the implications for workers and the taxi industry. I also wanna cover events around uh, Uber in California, uh, including Proposition 22, and um, which will be on the California California voter ballot in November. And uh, also I wanna talk about how we can regulate and restructure the use of technology for transportation and ride hailing. So if we can get through it all, um, we basically just wanna cover, you know, so somebody from listening from the outside who never really looked into what, what is going on here, they can have the background, they can look at what is going on in the world that's important right now and then kind of get some vision as to you know what we really should be doing instead of what we have uh, right now. But before we jump into it, I wanna ask you, where did you start in your studies and how did you wind up working on this issue? It's a really <clears throat> great question and the answer like many, um, answers is circuitous um, in terms of how, how we sort of started working on the things that we work on. Um, after September 11th, I became um, interested in uh, hate violence that was happening to South Asian um, and Muslim and Arab communities all over the country. And so I started interviewing taxi drivers because um, taxi dri a taxi driver in San Francisco had just been murdered. Paul so he was murdered um, you know, soon after actually his brother was murdered in another act of hate in Arizona. And I just started hanging out with taxi workers in the parking lot um, of the San Jose airport. And I realized very quickly that hate violence was only a small aspect of the larger structural violence that they were experiencing as immigrant men in this country. Um, I didn't know up until that point that you could labor um, in formal work in the U.S. and go home in debt. And so I sort of, it, it um, I learned in that moment about the, the, classification and misclassification of workers as independent contractors. And I started um, organizing with and, um, and advocating for taxi drivers and ended up doing my dissertation on this research. And um, soon after I 
filed my dissertation, Uber and Lyft hit the streets of San Francisco alongside Sidecar. And this was 2013, 2014. And, um, and the first thing that, of course, I noticed um, or that I, I experienced um, uh, in listening to the taxi drivers was that almost immediately their already precarious lives became much more precarious and um, they were being undermined, um, economically undermined, supposedly by technology and innovation and by, you know, a discourse of, um, of the future. And, um, and they did some pretty incredible, um, incredible organizing to to stop what was then illegal activity. And they, um, you know, they lost the battle and the regulations that they were fighting in California then spread all over the country and all over the world alongside the business models that the companies were espousing. And so I really got thrown into this work and it's um, everything that I sort of know and understand is really shaped by the way workers understand um, what's happened to them both in the taxi and the Uber economy. And, um, and I, um, I, you know, there have been massive shifts over the past uh, six years um, in terms of how we think about this work. But the fact of the matter is, is that, that drivers on the ground, both taxi drivers and Uber drivers, um, have just had worsening working conditions. Um, and so I've continued to do this both as um, both as research. Um, I, you know, I research self-organized drivers in the Bay Area and um, the LA area, um, but I also have been doing a lot of advocacy in the past year um, to help shift what the regulatory framework is. All right. Interesting. So um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see how people's, you know, research evolves because you know, you don't embark on that particular issue. If you started at the beginning saying, I'm going to be looking heavily into taxi uh, drivers and, and work, uh, you might not have thought that you would wind up there. And, um, you know, some, some of my work, um, ha- uh, I wound up in South Africa and I do want to circle back to this issue of the uh, business model, but um, it's, uh, it's interesting to see how tech has kind of, you know, really thrown a, a not a wrench, but it's really just blown up as as an issue, and it wasn't anticipated to explode that quickly in in the academic spaces early on. Um, yeah. Now, if we're if we're looking at um, workers and and the taxi industry, let's start from kind of ground zero. So, um, once upon a time, if you wanted to get a ride somewhere. You, if you're in a city, you can wave for a taxi in the street. If you're living in a suburb, um, a lot of times you would just have to call a taxi cab, right? And traditionally that seemed like it was, at least to me when I was growing up, it seemed really expensive to do, right? So you you never really did it if you were in the suburbs. And then along came uh, one day a company called Uber. Um, maybe they weren't the first, I don't know the full history, but I do know that for most people, that was their first introduction to this idea that you can just download an app and and somebody will come to you and then you're off on on your way. So, um, how would you describe, um, Uber, Lyft, these companies in a nutshell, what distinguishes them, um, is it, is is the big thing that they are technology companies and um, why did they become so overwhelmingly dominant? 
Yeah, these are great questions. And let me just start by saying that um, the reason that it was so expensive to call a taxi, um, you know, back in the day or maybe more expensive than public transportation is because um, people have to make money to live. So um, in order for the taxi companies to be successful, in order for the workers to be able to make a living from their work, um, fares had to be set at a certain price um, because this is a um, an industry in which uh, the amount of overhead is quite expensive. Cars are expensive. Gas is expensive. Insurance is expensive. There's a lot of wear and tear on vehicles. And so prices were really calibrated to ensure that both um, both uh, companies could, you know, make money and, um, and at least the workers on top could make money. So there are all different layers of workers that existed in the taxi industry. And I don't want to sort of romanticize what the taxi industry was like because Certainly the people who were leasing from the leasers were in very, very precarious positions. But um, the idea, of course, through fair regulation that came about um, during the Great Depression was that we, you know, consumers had to be charged a price to ensure both their safety and um, and to ensure that the drivers in the industry were was making a living were making a living wage. So in large cities, um, uh, municipalities got at this issue by restricting supply, um, you know, restricting the number of, of taxis that were allowed to exist on the street at any given time and by, um, by regulating fares. And again, this was always seen as consumer regulation as well as worker regulation. And in, um, in the 1980s and early 90s, when we saw some attempts to um, take away fare regulation, to take away um, supply regulation, uh, those attempts largely failed because there's not a lot of um, surplus value um, in the industry. So when um, Uber and Lyft and Sidecar, I think Lyft and Sidecar were actually first, when they first started operating, again, on the streets of San Francisco for the first time ever in the, in the world, um, they didn't get this. So if you look at the, the stack, um, the sort of the PowerPoint that their um, CEO, their eventual CEOs uh, used to pitch this idea to um, venture capitalists, they didn't understand the industry. They didn't understand how little value there was in the industry. Um, and so I think very quickly what they learned was that the only way to make this work um, was to do so um, through exploitation. So what is new about this work is not actually the technology, which you, as you and your listeners probably know, the technology is just a dispatch technology that was actually available and used in the taxi industry prior to um, Uber and Lyft. What is new about Uber and Lyft is the business model of having um, the drivers themselves bear the burden of risk um, in an extreme way. So uh, the reason that we have such cheap rides right now is both because rides are subsidized by venture capital. You know, these companies have never turned a profit, um, but also because drivers are earning so little. In California, we know that most drivers are earning less than a minimum wage because they there is so much downtime. 
for them because there's an oversupply of drivers in relationship to, to demand. So what seems extremely efficient for to consumers because they get their ride right away or within a, a, a short time period um, for really cheap is actually a hugely inefficient system because, um, again, these rides are subsidized, the company is losing money, but also um, the drivers are just driving around, driving around, driving around, waiting for um, a fare to be assigned to them. And this has it has raised, and I know this is a particular issue to you, has raised all kinds of environmental issues um, uh, that ha- are just now sort of being talked about and discussed eight years into this industry. So um, if I could take you back to you know, 2008, 2009, 2010, um, in the taxi industry, we were, you know, in a a recession, um, and the taxi companies alongside some of the taxi worker cooperatives um, were pushing for um, a zero carbon impact. So they had these really kind of amazing um, rules and regulations in place where they were all shifting to hybrid or electric vehicles. Um, the, co- the co-op in San Francisco, which is the city that I study, um, Green Cab was actually any kind of profit that they had, they were um, they were using that profit to offset their carbon footprint. Like there was a real attention to um, environmental issues caused by automobile use. And, um, and of course that just got blown out of the water with Uber and Lyft. And so in addition to the extraordinary wear and tear that we see on our streets, the traffic, the congestion um, that has just become, you know, out of control in the Bay area. um, We also saw, a real rise in um, in emissions as a result of having cars circling all, you know, circling, 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 looking for fares. Interesting. So um, I want to run some numbers by you and and we'll circle back to that issue of um, all sorts of issues here with environment and um, paying a a living wage and the viability of this model. Uh, But before we do that, um, so a 2018 Business Insider article reported data that shows Uber and Lyft went from almost 10% transportation market share in 2014 to 72.5% in quarter two of 2018. By comparison, they brought in um, uh, other industries here. So rental cars went down from 55% in 2014 to 22.3% in 2018. And taxis went down uh, um, almost 40% and from almost 40% in 2014 to 5.2% in 2018. Do those numbers sound about right to you? Yeah. I mean, there are a ton of people driving around in their cars trying to make money and often actually losing money in the process. And so from an economic standpoint and an environmental standpoint, these business models were very quickly devastating. Okay, and I'm asking that also in in part because this is part of the the more general gig economy question because I I know I I had um, emailed you and 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 about the question of of how much gigified will the general economy be and it doesn't seem to be the case that um, it has exploded you know all across everywhere like now everybody's a gig worker right and, but yeah. it does seem that at least in the transportation industry that it has been something that has been, am I right about that? That, it, that, is, it that is right. 
Yeah, I want to talk about this. Yeah, I think it's a really important question. And I want to talk about this a little bit. So um, maybe four years ago, there was a lot of speculation that this was going to grow and take over the entire service industry and everyone was going to be a gig worker. And um, and I think that that did not happen for a variety of reasons, um, including but not limited to some enforcement. So there were some cases where you had, um, you know, less consumer interest, um, more precarious work and more interest on behalf of regulators um, and and plaintiff's attorneys and and unions to sort of shut down the the misclassification or the gigification of of these sectors. And so in we, we sort of saw a slowing down of venture capital in this space. So for a while, venture capitalists were like, oh my God, you know, we're just throwing money at everything that was kind of like Uber. Um, and then it seemed like, for example, there was a, um, a home cleaning company that went under because of a misclassification lawsuit. Um, all of a sudden, Uber and Lyft were facing potential regulations in, in New York City and um, in California and Seattle. And so I think there was a signal to... Um, to investors that now is not the time to continue to put money into this economy. And so instead to use Uber and Lyft, um, because it's so, because they're such popular consumer services, to use them um, to do cultural work. So um, although there was a slowdown in the number or the growth of gig workers and gig companies um, around 2016, um, what we've seen since then in the last four years is um, a shift in how a very a very um, a very choreographed shift in how people think about work and work protections. So you've heard a lot in the last two years, especially um, you've heard these buzzwords: portable benefits. Um, Sometimes you hear the word sectoral bargaining sort of pushed out by the gig companies. Um, you hear um, that um, that this is innovative, that this is what workers want for the future, that um, that workers are, these are just part-time workers. You hear all of this sort of language that's really quite reminiscent of, um, of what we heard temp agencies articulate in the, in the post-war period. Um, but what I've argued is that these companies have, are, are doing and are, um, are doing cultural work as well as regulatory work, particularly in these hotspots like New York, um, New York and California. And if they succeed in doing the, in particular, if they can uh, succeed in doing their regulatory work to create space for themselves in this, um, in this, in, in operating in the way that they do, um, then I think that this has the potential to grow, um, although it has slowed down. Okay, that, that's that's interesting um, because. Um, if we're looking at, you know, what what gives them their advantage here? Um, why is it so? Uh, last I checked, uh, Uber was around seventy one percent of the market share for e hailing, and Lyft had most of the the rest. Um, yeah. Now, interestingly, if we're looking at uh, the hearings that are going on about monopoly, right? There's a kind of Uber Lyft duopoly in the United States now. They're not included. Microsoft also wasn't included. Um, so there's there's some others. I did want to get your your thoughts on that real quick. But um, before before cue that for a second. Um, what so it what gives them such advantage in in, in the tech space? Is it the um, network network effects? So they're not interoperable. If I'm uh, uh, I'm not going to install you know 10 20 um, apps on my phone different kind of Uber one two three four five 
Um, and also drivers are not going to be a member of that many different services. So you, so you have net network effects there. You can look at um, the intellectual property. Um, so these are proprietary apps. Um, do they get any special access to data from the city? Um, is it the efficiency of their algorithms? What are the set of things that make Uber and Lyft so dominant vis-a-vis -vis other competitors? Obviously, there's the first mover advantage and the VC backing as well. Is that yeah. the sum total right, right there pretty much? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you articulated that well. And I would just highlight that so much of this is the VC backing. I mean, it is impossible, nearly impossible in environments um, where they have not yet entered the market to compete with them. Um, and so... Um, uh, or environments where they have entered the market to compete with them. And so, you know, when they exited, for example, Austin, in, in when they did a capital strike and exited Austin because they were mad about having to do, I think, FBI background checks, um, there was a, a more open access sort of cooperative models that popped up and that were successful temporarily. And um, But then as soon as they came back, they, um, they you know, Uber and Lyft made, made those those things less, um, less popular. So I think that in addition to the VC backing, what has made them really successful, that makes them hard, makes uh, that other people without that kind of backing or other companies have a hard time scaling is, um, is that they operate in all major cities in, in Cal in, in, in the world, or at least Uber in the world and then Lyft all over the U S. And so, um, for, you know, it's like this brand that you can rely on no matter where you are. And their, um, and their, you know, their capitalization has also resulted in their ability to, um, to market themselves in extreme and in extraordinary ways. Um, you know, they've become, both of these companies have become, um, names that everyone is familiar with in the same, you know, we use the term Lyft and Uber, the way people use Xerox and Kleenex. Um, I, I, but more than anything, I think it's the capitalization and, um, and their, um, and their marketing and also their access. So they, in part, because they have so much money, they've had, um, incredible access to regulators, to people who are well situated, you know, Susan Kennedy in California, who was both in um, Brown's, Governor Brown's administration and in Governor Schwarzenegger's administration, who's very politically well situated, um, was fined for illegally lobbying on, on, on the part of Lyft. And I understand that she continues to, um, as maybe even on their board and continues to, to, to lobby on their behalf. Um, but this is someone who knows everyone in California and anyone who's anyone. And this is true, you know, They've hired, they hired up all the Obama administration people, um, you know, anyone who's anyone in politics is, has been in some way connected to these companies and that kind of, um, that kind of instrumental power in addition to their structural power has been really, um, successful. So then the, um, business model here, it's been said, uh, and I, I've read some studies on, I can't remember the name of the person you might recall, but um, basically going through and, you know, kind of um, and systematically interrogating Uber's business model. And look, there's investments from Silicon Valley, rich investors, Wall Street, Goldman Sachs, um, overseas sources like Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. And uh -huh. so the question is, um, and, and it's been said that their business model is uh, basically go into a market, 
you're operating at a loss, you're, you're leaking out a billion dollars or so a quarter, but what you can do is wipe out the local competition. And then over time, once you've decimated all the competition, you raise the prices back up. Now, right. this would seem to be um, what I would, what comes, the word that comes to mind to me is predatory pricing. Um, yes. So <laughs> the question is, why aren't they just nailed on this? Why, it, how can they even survive if this is so transparent? And why aren't they being uh, you know, mentioned or, or should they be mentioned for something uh, like an antitrust investigation? Yeah, I mean, they should absolutely be be <laughs> be investigated for antitrust violations. But of course, the way antitrust has, has been enforced in the U.S. since roughly the the 1980s, you know, they're not in the the spotlight. We might see a shift in this, but it is absolutely predatory pricing. It's it's completely transparent, and they've said as much. You know, um, this information doesn't come from from um, from investigative journalists or, you know, economists who are uncovering un, uh, unknown things. This is coming from the companies themselves. Um, the, yeah, I mean, they are, they are acting um, uh, monopolistically. They are offering prices that are, um, that are lower than market value in order to rope consumers in. And then anytime there is any kind of labor regulation for Propose, they say, well, we're going to have to, that's going to cause us to raise consumer prices um, in order to, you know, in order to put regulators and um, the public off. And the reality is, is that they're going to raise consumer prices anyway. You know, Amazon did the same thing and, um, and they're following a similar model. They're going to raise the prices um, because they have to, you know, they're operating at a loss. Now let's let's talk about um, the prices and the notion of of a living wage and how we're what, you know what information we have on uh, the living conditions of workers. So you wrote an article called "The Drive to Precarity: A Political History of Work Regulation and Labor Advocacy in San Francisco's Taxi and Uber Economies," and that's at SSRM. And uh, in there, you say between the 1920s and the 1970s. Taxi driving across the United States was regulated, union work. Uh, drivers worked full-time, but not overtime, earned a living wage, and enjoyed the dignities of work and a political voice alongside their union brothers. Um, can you, or, or what is, what happened here? So is it easy to determine what an average Uber person works? Is there good data on this? Um, when I, we all have the the have had the experience of talking to somebody and said, "Well, I've met Uber drivers and they're very happy with being yeah. an Uber driver, right?" And so, <laughs> unless you have some sort of way of separating yeah. out right the anecdotes from the person who you also read about who sleeps in their car, yeah, right, um, yep. Yep. So I, you know, I say this, it's very frustrating to me. Um, I, you know, I have um, studied and, um, and worked and organized alongside, I've, you know, I've been doing this embedded ethnography alongside organizing Uber drivers for a number of years now. And so whenever I give a talk, someone in the audience will say, oh, but I, you know, my, every time I talk to an Uber driver, they say this, or they say that. And, um, and I, and I have a few responses to the, to those, to sort of, um, that anecdotal, um, uh, you know, methodology, if you will. And that is that every time you are in an Uber, you are that person's boss. 
So what, when you are um, rating some, you know, when you rate the person at the end of the ride, you are effectively determining whether or not they are going to continue to be allowed to work on the ride. You're determining what their wages are going to be in the future. You're determining whether they're going to get fares in the future. You know, so much rides on their, on their rating. And so, um, of course, every time you talk to an Uber driver, or this is what I say to people who tell me this, um, every time you talk to an Uber driver, they're going to say, they're going to say really nice things because they want to a good rating. Um, so there are all kinds of different Uber drivers, you know, um, the companies, I think, I think the companies based on the company's own data, they suggest that something like more than 50% of people who um, try and become a driver or log on to become a driver, stop doing it within, um, within a year. Um, I've read other information that suggests that 70% of people stop doing it after four months. Um, so what we really want to hone in on when we're talking about the workforce is we want to hone in on the drivers that are doing it for a long time, who are stuck, who are either stuck with it or they're sticking with it. And those drivers by and large are the dependent drivers. Um, and I, Juliet Shore um, has come up with this really useful term um, to think about gig workers. Some of those dependent drivers Drivers are full-time drivers. Some of them are part-time drivers, but they are dependent on driving for um, some basic income, basic needs that they need to, um, to, to have met. And so um, the vast majority of work on the app is, um, is done by drivers working full-time and more than full-time, even though the vast majority of drivers are themselves um, uh, part-time drivers or casual drivers. And so for these drivers who are doing all of the work and who are working full time, um, they are in the Bay Area um, where wages are generally higher than they are in Southern California, often migrants. So they are people who work in the Central Valley or, or sorry, live in the Central Valley or live in Southern California and drive up um, because demand is here and prices are higher here. So I, you know, talk to any number of drivers who are sleeping in their cars, who are, um, you know, showering at 24 hour fitness. This is all pre-pandemic. Pandemic, um, and who are, uh, you know, like they are truly migrant drivers. Um, you also have a lot of, of full-time drivers. The, the, the vast majority, of, even the part-time workforce, are immigrant and people of color. So you're talking about a really um, the most marginalized and vulnerable people in the labor market. Um, they're mostly men. There's not, there's some women, more women certainly than there were in the taxi industry, but um, mostly men. And um, and these are people who maybe were told that they could make a certain amount if they bought a car or leased a car, you know, these earnings guarantees that these companies um, have, and then very quickly learned that that, that, they, that that information was not representative or not true, but they were all of a sudden, you know, liable for these payments on their cars. So people really driving in a kind of um, indentured servitude capacity and a real, with, a, you know, a, a lot of debt on their neck as they're, as they're trying to earn a living. Um, and what's hard is that no Uber or Lyft driver ever in the history of Uber and Lyft have ever earned a wage. I'm sorry, earned a raise. So wages are always dropping. Um, so you can be a driver that started in 2016 who continues to drive for Uber and Lyft and you have only seen your income drop precipitously since the beginning. Um, and so what you, what you end up with is a really... Um, 
you know, who, who are the people that are going to continue work to, to do this work? It's going to be the people who are most desperate. Um, a lot of refugees, I've interviewed a lot of refugees in the Bay Area, um, people who are, have to take care of, of not just, um, you know, a younger generation, not just children, but who are taking care of older generations, a lot of immigrant families who are also living transnational lives. I mean, really talking about um, people on on the borders of the um, of the global labor market who have, um, you know, come here, they're economic migrants that come here for um, for uh, for better life, and they end up in this work. Right. And and um, in that regard, they also wind up um, running into this issue of these opaque algorithms. Uh, you have a piece, uh, an article out called Digital Piecework, and you kind of give some uh, case examples, uh, which is just, you can imagine being in that situation where uh, somebody, that the algorithms change and all of a sudden um, it's, for example, one example you gave is, is it's directing you as a driver to a place where you believe where there's supposed to be a lot of opportunities to pick up people who are asking for rides and then you show up there and there's nothing. And in that yeah. process, right, you're not getting paid until you secure that ride, right? So when you said there's no such thing as nobody, no worker has owned or earned a raise, but you first said wage, right? And that yeah. sense, right? It almost applies there, right? Like because yeah. they're not ha- they don't have a steady wage, and absolutely they're not allowing. The, are they what they want? What Uber and Lyft and, and, and these companies want is the ability to um, take that out of the equation, so they don't have to pay for that, even though it's a necessary part of the job, right? On yeah. the job, yeah. Um, so you know, um, can you speak a little bit to this? Um, algorithmic, um, you know, situation that makes it different than the traditional taxi industry. Yeah. So this is actually where I think to, um, to, to give them due credit. And I mean this in the worst way possible um, that these companies have innovated. So I don't think that their sort of dispatch technology is particularly innovative, but what they are really good at and what they've done, done a great job of sort of inventing um, using, using digital technologies is, um, is tricks, you know, be uh, ways to trick uh, consumers and drivers um, into, um, into create making decisions that are good for the company and bad for the workers and the consumers. So um, the I'll just give you two examples that I think are, are sort of telling about how this happens. So many drivers, like part of, you, you know, there's this whole economy of, of influencers and content creators who are teaching other drivers how to make a living doing Uber and Lyft. Um, and the reason that they, they exist is because there are, are all kinds of different ways that the companies have created where drivers can game the system, you know? Um, and so like I've talked to a driver who, um, and this is true of many, many people, but this particular driver had figured out like a trick, um, that he was using. He used it for about six months. He said he was, it was working for him. He was gaming the algorithm. He was uh, making bank. He thought this was like, this was going to be his future. And very quickly the company switched um, switched around the algorithm, so it stopped stopped working for him, and um, and you know all of a sudden he 
his income was decimated, sort of the plans that he had made, the financial plans that he had made um, for his future were, you know, out the window and the predictability that he saw um, in his, in his work and in his future was just sort of no longer existed literally overnight. Um, another driver, and this happens to drivers on a daily basis. So wages are, are you know, spare, their the percentage, the, their commission is super low. So really what drivers try and get are bonuses. That's where the income comes in for them. It's really where their wages are. And so what the, they'll, they get these personalized bonuses where, oh, if you finish 20 rides in five days, you'll get $100 or $150 extra. But then um, when you get closer and closer to that, that a target number to 20, it gets harder and harder and harder to meet the, to, to meet it. And so like one driver, um, uh, just that pops to mind said, was telling me he was like on a Friday night, super busy part of LA driving around, trying to get his 20th ride so he can, he could get his, um, his bonus. And he just couldn't get it. And he was like, what's going on? I like, I'm in a super busy area. I see people waiting for their Ubers and Lyfts. Why can I, why am I not getting a ride? And he said, you know, this happens to everyone. Like that they make it, they use, they use the information asymmetry. The fact that they know you're about to, um, to make your bonus, to make it impossible for you to make your bonus. And so, um, in that way, I, I've compared this to, um, to addiction, like they use behavioral psychology um, uh, insights um, combined with algorithms to create a situation in which um, carrots are often dangled in front of workers such that it always feels like there's hope. It always feels like they could make this work. Um, but in fact, um, it is a gamble, um, an everyday gamble, whether or not they're even going to end up with more money than they started with, started the day with after working a long shift. So the, um, I, I do want to ask a question um, real quick about, um, so I, I want to get over to the Proposition 22, because uh, I think that's really important. Um, but before we do that, I just want to mention short, uh, quickly, so we can budget our time here, um, the international context. Um, when I was in South Africa doing my research, I met the metered taxi. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, when I went up to Pretoria, I took metered taxi um, fares and, or rides and they hated Uber and Mm -hmm. Uber showed up, I believe it was 2013 in South Africa. By the time you hit 2015, violence is breaking out. Now there has been violence in the South African taxi industry prior to the arrival of Uber. um, But it winds up turning into a situation where people are burning each other to death. Right. Mm -hmm. In addition. So like, because when you're in that situation um, in a a labor market in situation, a post-colonial situation like South Africa, um, I think if this is from memory, there's like 400,000 taxi drivers, something like that, something like 400,000 teachers, right? So this is a job that uh, I don't want to call taxi driving unskilled, but it's still a job that um, can be provided by somebody um, where their livelihood is dependent on it. And when you sweep that out from, I'm not saying that it's more extreme. There are people also who are who have that precarious situation in the United States, um, but it, it did surprise me that the extremes of violence that, that you see going down in places like South Africa, it's going down in, in Mexico, it's going down in, in Kenya from what I've read, that the, the more extreme the society, right, the, the more crazy it, it turns people when they lose that little bit of livelihood that they have. Um, so it seems as though that um, 
you know, this is market expansion and um, um, that the business model here, there's a lot at stake as to um, setting a norm for society because if you use the status quo, especially in a place like the United States, which at least some countries like South Africa, um, you know, will turn to, you're basically setting now a standard that other people and other workers in the world can look at that case example and say, well, but look at how they're doing it there. Um, why don't why don't we have it this way too? So it seems to me that there's a lot at stake in getting this issue um, right for workers, um, you know, in the United States as well. Um, so the the question I have then is, um, if you would like to comment on on the global South context, um, that would be great. If 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 you have some you know, work on that or you're aware of some work on that going on. But also, um, let's start talking about regulation. Um, there's Proposition 22. There was the California Assembly Bill 5 called uh, AB5. Um, what is the, um, these, what is the, the regulatory situation um, at the moment? And I know that the uh, Proposition 22 is very contested. The opinion polls show that it's pretty much neck and neck, pro and, and against. And there, if I, correct me if I'm wrong here, there needs to be a majority to get it through. Um, so what is the state of regulation um, in California right now? And what are the stakes um, for Uber and Lyft in, in the future of the industry? Yeah. So first, I want to say that, you know, Uber and Lyft is a the, the work produced um, in this economy and um, and that goes, you know, uh, regulated, but in a in a in an um, in a way such that workers are excluded from protections um, is very much an example of of racial capitalism. You know, you have these workers that are on the very margins of the economy. You um, they're mostly people of color. You have um, experiments that are conducted in the global south with both algorithms and through programs and that slowly make their way into the U.S. Um, like for example, U Uber's predatory lending program that they were going to begin in um, in in the U.S. I think probably it, it was put on 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 hold after it got such negative press, but it's it was first rolled out in um, in Brazil and in India um, amongst you know literally the world's most vulnerable populations. Um, and so in that sense, this work not just in the U.S. but all over the world is performed by people who are um, who are really uh, just people who are discarded by society, who have just um, whose state actors have paid little little attention to their um, to their to the importance of their lives and livelihoods. Um, and so. So what is at stake right now in California, I think, is exactly as you said, um, the creation of either a regulatory system where they are, these workers are included in the formalized labor market or a system in which they are um, um, their formal their informalization is codified, which would then uh, you know spread all over the U.S. and probably the world. Um, again, the first and, and first regulations that were ever created around these companies were created in California um, and then spread all over the world. And so we know that that this, you know, this is just generally a pattern for um, for these firms. 
So AB5 was a law that passed in 2019 that changed the definition of who is an employee in California based on um, based on a Supreme Court decision that had come down the year before. And it's not so much, I mean, this law wasn't, wasn't aimed just at the gig economy. It was really aimed at misclassification of workers more generally because for, as I've written for a really long time, different companies like FedEx, um, for example, had used the definition of who is an employee for, for, for purposes of regulatory protections um, to carve more and more workers out. So they had been able to evade uh, protections for workers like the minimum wage by, um, by using the definition, which was a, a control definition, how much control did the employer exert in the workplace, and, and just trying to make it look like they exerted less and less and less control. So AB5 changed this definition, and um, the most, most uh, sort of um, important aspect of this change was that they said, well, um, if you're in the high, if you are in the same business of, as your worker, then that then that person is your employee. Um, like unless you can say that you're in a different, um, you know, in a wholly different business than they're in, then um, then then you have someone who you are responsible to for the minimum wage and overtime and workers' comp and unemployment insurance. So, um, and, so that, sorry, go that ahead. Would be, that would be, um, for example, I heard you say um, elsewhere, if you're Walmart and you're hiring a plumber, you're not in the same business. So in exactly. other words, you're contractors. And if you're um, Uber and you're hiring, you're a ride-sharing app and you're hiring them for ride-sharing, um, you, can't, you can't play this pretend game that they're kind of like the plumber. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so the California court in August of 2020 said, in fact, yes, these are all employees and um, of Uber and Lyft. And they, he, the judge ordered a court to treat the workers like employees. Uber and Lyft appealed and um, the appellate court stayed the injunction. And essentially where we're at right now in October is we're just going to wait to see what happens with the ballot measure. So um on the November 5th ballot measure, um, Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Instacart, Postmates, they put this um, ballot measure called Prop 22. It is the most expensive ballot measure in US history. They've put in a, a combined amount of $184 million to um, convince the voting public to vote in favor. They have hired um, PR firms, law firms, political opposition research firms that are known for uh, know, knowing how to trick can mislead the public. They've um, lawfully misrepresented themselves and what the proposition actually does um, in the media, in advertisements. Um, They're flooding every California voter um, in every avenue they have to convince people to vote in favor of this. Um, And what the proposition would do is legalize a third category of employment that is well below um, the standards provided by employment in the United States. So workers would not get the minimum wage. They would only get paid during engaged time. That is time when someone is assigned to them, which during the pandemic is something like only 20% of the time. Prior to the pandemic was about 50% of the time. Um, They will not get healthcare. They would not get workers' compensation. They would not get unemployment insurance. They would not have the right to unionize. Um, And so basically it is the codification of their, you know, their their business model, their exploitative business model, if it passes. Um, And if it passes, I'm afraid that it's going to be exported to every, um, every, every state in the U.S. and all over the world. And this is just going to be a feature of our economy. We're sort of going to lose the, the, um, the, the protections that, um, that workers got, uh, you know, the, 
out of the global labor struggles that led to the New Deal. Now, when you say the uh, for paid for engaged time, we're again talking about um, this uh, this issue that um, you know workers do things like drive around and look for rides and and things like that. Um, so the uh, the yes on twenty two campaign has been very aggressive in um, trying to promote this idea that um, those who are in support of AB5 are wrong and it's not good for workers, it's not good for consumers. If you go to their website, um, they have a list of talking points. They say 80% of app-based drivers work part-time, you rely on flexible hours. Um, you know, Prohibiting contract work would eliminate hundreds of thousands of jobs. There'd be longer wait times and higher prices for app-based app rideshare. Um, and then the, the positive things for them about Proposition 22 is, is they say it would guarantee hourly earnings per mile compensation toward expenses, funding for new health benefits uh, for workers clocking at least 15 hours per week, medical and disability coverage, um, and some other things. And then um, they, they list the interested parties like Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash, but also uh, there are some organizations like a number of NAACP organizations uh, that they list as in support. Um, what do you say in response to their um, talking points? Um, and can you talk a little bit about their um, information campaigns? Yeah, I mean, their talking points are, are um, all based on lies. So this idea, um, all these things that they say that they're going to supposedly offer workers, you know, the healthcare benefits, et cetera, are only available to workers who work for a certain period of time of engaged time. So it's not like I can work 20 hours a week or 40 hours a week and get those things. I have to work um, who knows how long because I, I don't control my own engaged time. They control my engaged time. And so um, it is very difficult to even estimate how many people are going to get the healthcare subsidies, which is of course less than full health insurance, which they should provide to people who are working more than 30 hours a week under Obamacare. Um, and in fact, I think, you know, based on my sort of rough estimates, I think someone would have to work 60 hours a week, um, even in a good economy to get to get the healthcare subsidies that they're talking about. They don't have hourly wage guarantees. They're only paying for engaged time once again. So, um, you know, their talking points are, you know, forgive my language, but they're bullshit. And they're really, um, like, really pisses me off because it sounds good on paper and it's just not good. It's really, really, really bad. Now, um, I, wa I want to shift for the, for the remaining time we have here um, um, to the question of models in, in the broader context, because I think it's really important to um, question, the, the, you know, how we should be interacting with technology and, um, you know, ride hailing services. Uh, mm -hmm. So um, here we can, we can look at uh, a bunch of issues. Um, from different models, like uh, you have platform cooperatives, public utility regulation, and so on, um, but also uh, the question of uh, cost and, and uh, the general context. So let's start off with that. Um, a couple of weeks ago, a RAND Corporation study came out, you might have seen on um, the uh, share of income that's been captured over the last 
40 or so years. Uh, the name of the study is called Trends in Income from 1975 to 2018. And it found that from 1975 to 2018, the difference between the aggregate taxable income for those below the 90th percentile, this is in the United States, and the equitable growth counterfactual that they're uh, speaking about their totals uh, $47 trillion. Um, and that if uh, there was equitable growth, keeping pace with productivity, um, prime age workers in the 25th percentile would be earning 61,000 instead of 33. Workers in the wow. 75th percentile um, who earned, uh, who in 2018 earned 81,000 would be making 126,000 um, and so on. And if you look at it now, we could look at this from a global context and say, American workers in the United States, um, the, what, what the study is basically saying is that the rich have captured all of the income. Mm -hmm. At the same time, if we were truly just on a global level, um, not all of that income should be due to people living in the United States because you're getting you know, blue jeans from sweatshop you know, That's right. and things yep. like that as well. Um, yeah. So part of this issue is the question, you know, does it make sense for people to be able to snap their fingers and get a cheap ride somewhere from somebody who's just out there waiting for them? At the same time, we have this issue of um, inequality where, um, you know, maybe there is the means to create some sort of uh, reasonable pay for these kinds of services. Um, mm -hmm. It seems to me that there's a decontextualization away from um, that conversation and that, um, you know, is this beyond the public to think about? Because it, it also seems to me that the public is very happy right now. The middle and upper classes are very happy right now um, to be able to walk around or sit in their house and have somebody just, just show up. Um, so what is the deal with this? I mean, is it... Is it something that is ultimately feasible or is this something that, you know, really actually should be something that is done on, a, a, you know, less frequently because the idea, it's kind of like every, everybody having a houseworker, right. To, to clean yeah. their house for them. Right. Like, yeah. is that really in a just society, something that we really would have, or would that be something that fills is more niche and that fills in when you're elderly and disabled and now you have a houseworker come or you're in a tight situation. So now you have somebody who can come and help you, you know, drive to somewhere and, and so on. So I want to ask, first of all, about the general context there, and then maybe um, talk a little bit about the platform cooperatives, public utility re regulation and that sort of thing. Yeah. So, um, yes, <laughs> this is, I, I mean, I generally think that, um, it is not so bad to have, um, a serve, you know, a service in society where someone has to, you know, someone takes someone else's body from point A to point B, as long as that is not that, that service is, is valued and, um, and someone is able to make, um, a good living off of it. Um, in the state that we are in, um, in the way that that this work is exists, um, both in the taxi industry prior to prior to Uber and Lyft, and in the um, in the 
in the Uber and Lyft industry, what you have are these sort of atomized, subservient workers who are not able to in any way, shape or form, even make a, min a minimum or living wage, um, much less what they actually um, deserve for the important work that they are doing. Um, and I think you're right that it's important to think about this through global value chains of capital, um, not just in terms of the commodities that go into um, Uber and Lyft, you know, the, the, the data, the data labeling that's done by workers in Madagascar, the, um, the cars that are produced by workers in, 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 in China and India, the, um, you know, the gasoline that comes from, from, from elsewhere, all, you know, there's all sorts of, of ways that we can um, map out the, the, the commodities that make this, that, and all the labor that goes in, the exploited labor that goes into even the, um, creating the infrastructure of this work and, um, and how, you know, workers might find or have solidarities with global workers um, uh, everywhere who are part of this, part of these value chains. Um, but I think it's also um, worth noting um, that the workers all over the world who are doing this particular type of work, who are engaged in this sort of subservient, um, um, subservient gig work, they are themselves um, organizing with one another. So in January, we there was an app-based driver conference, um, all for drivers from Nigeria and India and South Africa and Europe and um, and the U.S. And they all got together to compare notes about their experiences. So just in the same ways that you know, capital um, coordinates um, to to create these exploitative conditions and to maximize revenue and profits, these these workers had the opportunity to um, to meet and talk and they are talking and they and I don't I don't mean to say that they will succeed in any way and and I don't want to romanticize sort of their power because they don't have a lot of power but I do want to just say that um, that and give credit where credit is due that they are thinking about these things they're thinking about the data they're thinking about um, they're thinking about the environment they're thinking about all the things that we've discussed here and um, and so you know, it's not just it's not just um, us as academics who are sort of making these observations about the value chains and about um, and about how work should or could be, um, but it is the workers themselves who are envisioning different different futures. So, I mean, to me, it sounds like we're just not sure, right, exactly what's feasible uh, without doing some really serious, in depth, probably number crunching and, and guesses about. Um, that issue. But the, the models then, I, I want to close on asking about some models here because um, when I when I first learned about Uber exploitation, Lyft, and, and these companies, um, the first thought that came to mind was, well, why don't cities just have their own app and then the yeah. taxi services that are there will, can all plug into it. And if you can, you can have 10, you know, 10 taxi, five taxi services, whatever yeah. that are in your city, um, each one of them could be on the app. You don't have the interoperability problem because unlike, say, social networking, this is really confined into like a geographic space. You yeah. can open source it so that um, development in one city can be shared and, and taken yeah. in by another city. All yes. you need is the architecture and administration in the background. Um, you know, why isn't there just like, you know, New York City, San Francisco... 
Man, I've been talking about this for a long time. I think that um, I think that the absolutely the path forward is, um, you know, there are two paths forward. There's the platform cooperative path, and then there's the public option path. And I really think that the public option path here is the way to go. I think the way to do this equitably to make um, to make this um, work that is good work to create better jobs, even for people, sort of infrastructural jobs, the people who are creating the, the, um, the, the architecture of the, um, of the services themselves to do this so that it is good for the environment. Um, like this, this needs to be, um, this needs to be controlled by municipal municipalities and it's completely possible. I think that our governments are just so, so in an awe of technology and of, of, of venture capitalists that both they imagine it to be impossible and they, um, they uh, think of this as a space that necessarily needs to be privatized, which is just not the case. Um, you know, we're here, we're dealing with people's bodies. It is, there's, it's, it, you know, taxis were long considered public utilities for a reason. Um, and this is something that um, I think uh, cities and the people who live in cities in particular would really benefit from having this as a integrated into public transportation systems. And the um, advantage of, of a kind of public municipal owned option over a platform cooperative, what would be the reason to go with one or the other? Um, just because there is very little surplus value in this um, in this industry, and um, and so from the sort of the incentives um, that are developed through uh, a private entity, including a platform cooperative, I think just wouldn't serve um, either the workers or the public in a way that makes sense. I mean, taxi companies, many taxing companies were cooperatives, and yet you still saw multiple levels of exploitation. And so um, this is just an industry that I think would thrive um, through as a public utility. Sure. All right, uh, Vina, we'll leave it there. Uh, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Um, we will see what happens in the upcoming vote. Uh, yeah. Fingers crossed. I think it looks okay. Am I right? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. It yeah. looks okay. And um, you're coming out with a book at some point in the near future. Maybe next year. Yep. Okay. Well, I'll keep my eye out for <laughs> and um, stay in touch. And thank you again for coming on the show. Thank you, Michael. This is so great. Um, and thank you to your listeners. Be well. <laughs>